I think that we're in the middle deconstructing college education, the four-year degree as the path. We build something and it's there. And when we leave, it doesn't go away. Uh, and anyone that walks by it will, will see it. Anytime a student gets something like the equation, the method, whatever, the example you could put it, they get it. Like it suddenly makes sense and registers. It, it is so rewarding to look at them, see them get it and be like, oh, I'm doing my job. That's the juice that's worth, worth the squeeze. You know, when, when my mind latched on to the fact that there's intellect and thoughtfulness and practice, that's when I took off, like in terms of getting better at what I did and understanding what I did. That's teacher of carpentry and advocate for tradespeople, Aaron Butt. Today, Aaron and I talk about mentoring and what he sees as essential benefits for all employees of the construction industry. And if it's your first time listening, I'm Mike Kenoki, and I'm a general contractor of residential construction. I started in remodels, moved on to new homes and remodels, and now I'm just doing my own thing. I started this podcast in 2021, and now it's being broadcast in over 70 countries. And please help me keep up that momentum by sharing this podcast directly from your podcast app to whatever your favorite social media is. Subscribe to the pod so you don't miss an episode. And of course, feel free to join us on Instagram where there's always a conversation at the Contracting Handbook. Thanks for joining us. Here's a couple more bites to whet your appetite. A good mentor is someone that views mistakes as learning opportunities. A good mentee, a good learner, is somebody that is not afraid to make a mistake. A mentor looks at a mentee not as somebody that is subservient to them and they are going to, that is going to work for them forever, but as somebody that potentially could become their own boss, could become their own mentor. I have never seen it work in a manner that the person getting yelled at comfortably turns into the person doing the yelling. I currently have a, a, a 401k with maximum contribution. I have a good health insurance plan that covers my whole family. It's a, you know, slightly high deductible, but it's a decent, it's a decent insurance plan for a, for a construction company. I've always been looking for a company that is willing to give space to learning. The trades are a remaining element of that visceral creation. We are still creating with our hands. We are still, he's learning how to build, how to make how what we are in this world can contribute to creation. So I think the challenge is the buy-in, right? So I, I, I put a lot of work into getting the plumber or the electrician to be like, you know what you're doing. I'm going to do what you want to do. And one of the things that I love and building my expectations for the clients uh, with the subcontractors, the hope you have the guy I was talking to is that you're going to be present for your kids. You're going to be around for them so that when they become parents, they have a benchmark that you didn't have. You've got an opportunity. What does it mean to be a tradesperson? What does it mean to be a tradesperson? Yeah. Hmm. Wow, that's a hard question. everybody. Welcome back to the Contracting Handbook Podcast. Today, my guest is Aaron Butt. You may know him as Aaron Thomas Aquinas on Instagram. He's a site supervisor and lead carpenter, and he's also an instructor at MT Copeland. Thanks for being here with me today, Aaron. Hey, no problem. Happy to be here. So you and I got into a conversation a while back about the labor crisis. It's nagging us all. It's constant. Uh, this labor deficit. So one of the things that I brought up to you is that someone told me that there's no point of entry for these new laborers. And, you know, everyone else just says the next generation's lazy. Mm. 
So why don't you take a swing at that and tell me what your thoughts are as an instructor of, of uh, carpentry. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I, I, I'll take a swing at it for sure. Um, I think that the labor deficit that we're dealing with is, is, is more complex and more nuanced than just a laziness or a lack of interest factor. I think that we've spent the last generation or so in a place where, and I'm, I'm a product of this. I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid forties. And when I graduated from high school, I was already two years into being expected to go to college and get a degree, which I, I did. Uh, and then ended up where I am. But I think there, there's a combination of the, the steady push for young folk teenagers to move to the college format and get those college degrees coupled with a slow downdrafting of trade schools, of trade programs within schools. Uh, and so there's been, been sort of a, a vacuum of a space where there's an accepted mode of training and, and educating people in the fact that there are trades and they're valuable pieces of our life and our careers. I think we're dealing with a lack of exposure and a de-exposure to the value of trades in the workforce. And so over the course of you know decades, there's been a disinterest that has grown and has grown and has grown. And now we have uh, a lack of interest because people are unaware of the fact that it's a good career, that it is uh, a powerful career, that it is uh, an engaging career and you can make a living and live a life. I mean, to me, there it's, it's also there's fewer people available. If we have an unemployment rate, let's just say you, we'll, we're talking U.S. here. I know it's a problem everywhere, but our unemployment rate is supposedly 3.5%. Currently, and, like U.S., like U.S., like United States wide, we're at 3.9? 3.5 is uh, 3. something like that. Okay. All right. So there's fewer people available. I mean, there's the, the next generation is also much smaller than, than, than the boomers and Gen X. So there's fewer people. Technology has moved us in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I could I could see the the, the population shift. Uh, I think um, I think if that were the case, then we'd have to say the population size has something to do with a shortage in every every profession, every occupation, from engineering to doctors to you know. And I, I know that there's shortages floating around the various ethers, but I think all those are associated with outside circumstances, not population. I, I think that the population problem in the trades has more to do with the 08 recession, um, the, the, the Great Recession, is that what they called it? Where uh, there's, a, I don't have stats on me, we're, we're anecdotally having a podcast here, but there are stats on uh, the amount of people that left the workforce in the trades in 2008, 2009, when, when there was the Great Recession, and the amount of those folk that decided not to go back. And that was that number is significantly different than previous recessions where the building industry was affected. 79, 80, you know, stagflation, 89, 90, the savings and loan scandal, late, late 1997, the the, the stock, the dot-com boom. Those folks, they they like they they cut back on their work because they had, or I myself included, and some of those cut back on the work that we had because there wasn't work, but when the economy picked back up. They went back to it. 08 was different in the fact that millions of folk that were trades folk, trades people, lost their work, had to cut back on their work, got laid off, and were like, you know what, I'm done. I'm not going back to it. And so when the economy picked back up and the housing needs picked back up, the labor force was already shorthanded. And that fell in the middle of this downgrading in the schools and the education system of the value of training in the trades. Uh, we've, got, we've got lots of famous people to talk about it. Mike Rowe talks about it. Kevin O'Connor in this old house, they talk about it. Fine Holden Building with their Keep Craft Alive movement talks about it. There is, there's this void, there's this, this, this section of time 
between 08 and now where we had a big drop off in work and a lack of return coupled with a housing shortage and a decline in training the value of trades education. And I think that's, that, that's really what it, it, it's, I, I think I, I would, I would surmise that that's where the issue is not in a population decline. You know, besides the obvious uh, gap in, in education and, uh, the loss of workers after the last great recession. Uh, we've been talking about the fact that right now only in the U.S. specifically, women comprise about 9 or 10% of the workforce, yeah. of the labor force. And, and we want to move that number to about 30% in the next 10 years. How do we get more women in, uh, into the construction field? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a sweeping question. I, I, I can, uh, from experience, we, we hired a woman uh, years ago. I was with another firm. We hired a woman as a, as a carpenter, not an apprentice carpenter. She was a trade school graduate. So we had, she had some experience and she got sent to my job site and I had two or three other guys. And I remember the palpable silence and awkwardness uh, that the guys I worked with. And I, I'm not saying that I didn't feel silence or awkwardness i just i had a job as a supervisor to to handle the situation but it was new for me and and uh this like oh boy there's a woman here and the the, the range of questions are we allowed to swear anymore was one of the big ones like mm. do we have to be careful with our language and from that one could stipulate that their language was suspect and maybe sexist, who knows, <laughs> but like that they question those things. Um, I think that one of the things that needs to happen is um, we need women, we need, to, we need to have an environment where women are felt welcome. Um, and there's work being done on that. Um, intentional work from various influencers in, in the field that are, that are talking about it uh, from uh, various trade organizations specifically recruiting women because the male workforce is just not showing up at this point. But I think, I think most importantly, um, we need to foster, and I'm not sure how to do this. We need to foster the idea that a woman can do our job. And I say our, that's a falsehood. It's not our job, but women can do the job of a carpenter the job of a tradesperson as excellently, if not more excellently than we can. And to accept that, to, 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 to really begin to accept that a woman can be a fantastic, brutally brilliant carpenter is going to start to change things. Um, and I think part of that is just showcasing what they do and uh, bringing awareness to the fact that they're that they have been living in a world where they're not exactly welcome. I, I, I think that it's tied to language and habit. And, uh, you know, I, one of my pet peeves from the day I got into this is uh, the Makita girl. Like there was this, like, I've been to these trade shows where I go to the Makita booth and there's like a woman in like, like Hooters sort of shorts and a very tight halter top. And I have no problem with that. I don't I like, like I have no problem with a woman dressing like that, but that Makita chose to represent women as that versus having a woman run in the circular saw in the demo booth. That's a problem. So we need to change how the industry inserts women into the industry. And so that's at a, at a higher level. And it's not just Makita, Rigid's done it. I've seen a DeWalt booth where there's like uh, a quote unquote hot chick, like come see this. And it's like, no, we, I'd rather like, we need to have a woman like with a hard hat on and a tool belt on ripping plywood. Cause that's what they're capable of not just being ornaments. And, and so we need to change. We need to change at the industry level, how we represent women entirely and that's the start that's just the start and then you know welcoming them when they show up 
okay, what about what other barriers of entry? For instance, I didn't have any formal training. I just stumbled into it as a fallback to going to college. Um, and you know, I'm in, we're in the same generation, mm -hmm. but the more I do the show and the more I talk to people, it seems like a lot of people end up in the trades. Um, they don't really plan on it. So mm -hmm. that's may maybe going back to your lack of exposure. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think there's some truth to what you're saying. I think that, uh, ending up in it is something that's very common last 30 years, 40 years. Um, unless you're family, it's a family business and you learned it from your pop and you took on his business or your pop taught you in a way that you really learned to, or your mom learned to, you learned it from, from them and, and grew up wanting to do it, uh, which I think would probably be an outlier in the equation that there's a lot of, uh, fell into it. And there's a, a, a population of folks that did trade school in high school we've got a few of them around here and went straight to we have a we have a new apprentice at our company right now he's 19 years old and he did a tech he went to a voc tech school instead of a traditional high school graduated and got a job as carpenter and he planned on being a carpenter his whole teenage years so that does happen um but i do think um i do think one of the big problems is the downgrading of, of trade schools, of the downgrading of the idea that in ninth grade, you can choose to pick up a saw, a square and a tape measure and learn that as a potential profession, right alongside with enjoying a physics, your, your, your pre-physics, your pre-algebra, your algebra one, your physics, your AP physics, and wanting to go into physics to teach physics or any of the other high, like that it got decoupled from being an equal in our high school educational system, I think, I think is, is a big part of the problem. Do you see a solution coming for this labor deficit? Um, that's a tough question. I mean, it, like predictive, like thinking is, is always fraught. I think that there are a number of things that could contribute to the solution. I think one of them has been, and at least for now continues to be Instagram. Uh, it was an unknown entity and it was an unknown entity to me for quite a long while. And, and then I found myself in the middle of it and I found myself grappling with like real complex and real construction related issues in terms of answering questions for people. And there were people on the platform that were there, are there specifically to learn. So I think Instagram is one of those solutions and maybe broaden that to social media. I think there's some folks doing some good stuff on TikTok. I don't, I don't really do TikTok, but I know that there are some folks doing it. Um, and it's different than, than Facebook uh, or YouTube uh, in that a, a learner, a, a, a person that wants to learn can like, and I'll, you know, I'll give an example. I, um, I have a lot of followers that call themselves apprentices new to the game uh, that consider Instagram this really efficient model for approaching people that they perceive as experts. And I, um, that could be Spencer from Insider Carpentry, Tim Euler from Austin Framers. I, I could name all these folks that I just consider real experts, but you have this real clear path to like asking direct questions and getting direct answers. And so I think Instagram has been really powerful in terms of making our profession accessible. And because Instagram as a platform is an image crafting site. And what I mean by that is we try, like we want to be real about what we're doing, but we're also trying to make it look good. And I don't think there's a problem with that. I like everyone I know that's, that's in the education platform and doing what they're doing. There's an element of trying to make it look good. And if you're doing that and also engaging in an audience that wants to learn, I think that's doing 
good work towards making what we do more appealing to a younger audience. Um, so that I think is one element. Um, I think that we're in the middle deconstructing college education, the four-year degree as the path. I think that's happening. You see it all over the place from right-wing conservative media outlets to left-wing liberal media outlets in between that the idea that the four-year education as a rule that we need to engage in, I think we're deconstructing that. And so I, I, I think that part of the solution is that it's going to naturally unravel. And the need for the, the laborer, the craftsperson is going to create a push for it as a result of the fact that it just has to happen. So I think there's a solution. I'm not worried. I'm not worried that we're going to, you know, continue down this path of labor shortages to the point that the only choice is to make everybody a robot and, and, and sit us down. I, I, it, I think that the tension that we're in right now is why it seems problematic. Like we just, we don't know. We've got, we don't have enough people. My company right now, we've got seven major job sites going and every, every supervisor is like, I kind of feel like an island because I don't have enough people. We all don't have enough people, but that, that I think, I think there's a, I think there's a possibility that that's going to fix itself. I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm not worried. I guess I'm not worried about it. I, it, I see it as a problem, but I, I feel like there has to be a point where people that are coming out of high school at 18 years old and the miss the, the mystique of college is, 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 is melting away. If we can find a way to get in front of those people and say, Hey, listen, McDonald's is 12 bucks an hour. I'll pay it 20. And there's a career path in front of it and there's no debt like that, that it's going to win the day. And maybe that's just the, the optimist in me. I don't know, but that's where I stand. I like to hear some optimism. I haven't heard any yet about the labor crisis. So what does it mean to be a tradesperson? What does it mean to be a tradesperson? Yeah. Hmm. Wow. That's a hard question. I think a tradesperson value. Okay. So we're bored by things. We're excited by things. Uh, we receive energy from things. So let's go extrovert and introvert. An introvert is drained by the crowd, is drained by the party and charges by being alone, right? So I, I my, um, like charges up, becomes themselves to them by having time to themselves to settle and to, and to, and to recharge. An extrovert can feel drained by that aloneness and recharge by being amongst friends and family and, and, and groups. I think that, that, uh, that trades people place a lot of value in using their hands and their, and, and their uh, coordination, hand-eye coordination uh, to create something with their hands that is a physical object. Um, I have some friends that are in computer engineering, uh, software engineering, web development. They create incredible, beautiful things, but nothing is tangible is not the word I'm looking for. Uh, tactile, nothing's tactile. It's all on a screen. It all floats up to the web and then they get to view and click through. I think that trades people find a real value in, in, in making this, oh, what did I just do? making this square and being able to put their hands on it and put it where it belongs and, and, and a value in seeing the client. It's a real, uh, like, like existential question. Mm -hmm. Um, the idea that there, that, that life should be visceral and experienced and, and, and we can put our hands on it and feel it and, 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 exercise the option that we could be injured by it um which would be a risk you know I, I think there's something there i don't know if i have a really good answer for this other than to get weirdly philosophical um we build something and it's there and when we leave it doesn't go away 
uh, and anyone that walks by it will, will see it. And we have to trust that whatever we put into it, heart, skill, craft, mind, that that will be noticed. And, you know, th this varies, you know, I, I think that there is a, there's a group of people that frame houses at a mass pace and don't ever entertain this sort of thinking. But at the same time, they're going to walk away. Uh, a, a, a Brazilian framing crew from Framingham, Massachusetts um, is going to come in and uh, on, a, on a really good budget frame a structure for us to finish because the budget is what it is, but they're going to walk away and they're going to, at some level, trust that what they built is going to stand the test of time and the people are going to walk into their bedroom and lay down in their bed underneath those cathedral ceiling rafters. And those rafters were built in a way that they're going to stand the test of time. And so there, I don't know, there's, it's, it's, I think being a tradesman is all about being visceral. Maybe, I don't know. Does that make sense? Sure. That's a tough question, dude. <laughs> it's like it it doesn't beg the simple it doesn't beg a simple answer. Okay, tell me about the it. The it. We talked about this last time. I fancy myself to be uh, a teacher as well as a carpenter. I, I I did that professionally for a little while at the North Bennett Street School. Uh, when I got hired by my company com current company. Uh, they invoked that period of my career and uh, were interested in me continuing to be such within the confines of a building budget, which is a little different than a teaching budget. Um, but they, they felt that was a value that I could offer to the company. Uh, and just today in my review, um, they talked about that they valued that I take the time to teach the younger, the younger folk in our company. We have a few, not enough. I'd love to have four more 18 year old people, but I've got three. And, and so uh, when I have these apprentices on site, I, I apparently take more time to give them room to, to burn a piece of wood in order to learn from burning that piece of wood and to talk to them about what happened. Um, but one of the things that's the most rewarding as a carpenter that likes to teach other carpenters, as a woodworker that likes to teach other woodworkers, is to stand in front of them. And whether you're dealing with a mistake they made, catastrophic or minor, or whether you're standing in front of them when they had just a massive success, but to talk through it and to have them look at you and just, I get it. Like that moment when you're teaching, and this is not just carpentry and woodworking, this is, I taught history for a while. I taught music for a little while earlier in my career. Anytime a student, informal, formal, gets something like the equation, the, the method, whatever, the example you could put it, they get it. Like it suddenly makes sense and registers. And it, 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 it is so rewarding as a, as a teacher to look at them, see them get it and be like, oh, I'm doing my job. I'm doing my job and it's paying off. Being a teacher can be a really unrewarding exercise. Uh, I don't know if you've ever taught, but there can be months and years and uh, an entire class year where did I, did I make a dent? Did I, did, I, did I influence them at all? Did I help? Did I do anything? Because you just don't see it most of the time. But that moment where any of them just sort of their eyes open up and they, they realize something that you've been trying to teach them is that's the juice that's worth, worth the squeeze, you know? So how do we foster a mentee or, or how can we be the best mentor? So the, the, the ideal mentor, ideal mentee, um, I believe, and I don't want to speak for other people because I think there's successful models that work across the board, but my, my idea and concept of a good mentor 
stems from my dad and Alan Graustein, my seventh grade teacher and teachers. I have three or four teachers that, that, that I really, I really formed how I view learning through. And, and it's, there's no books on it. I didn't, I, I, I didn't, I didn't spend a lot, a lot of time studying it. I just, it's something that worked for me and has worked for the folks that I teach is, is um, a good mentor is someone that views mistakes as learning opportunities. And I know there's a limit to the mistakes that a person can make where it's no longer a learning opportunity. It's an evidence of somebody not having what it takes to be uh, the profession vocation that they're pursuing. Like there is a, there's a line where somebody's just not built for anything, you know, you're not built to be a carpenter at some point because you can't add or, or you can't, you know, there's just, just a line, but generally speaking, I feel that the most, the, 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 the largest, the, the, the highest efficiency of learning comes from, from allowing mistakes to happen without harsh consequence, but rather with opportunities to teach from those mistakes. So um, somebody, is, uh, uh, an apprentice is cutting a bunch of studs to a certain length and they all come out X amount wrong. We talk about why did they end up wrong and what was it, What? let's go through the process. It requires patience. What, what how do they end up wrong? Let's, let's, let's start back where you started measuring or setting up your cut block or whatever and figure out where it happened and why it happened and how we can avoid it in the future. And I think that if you can be patient with a person through their mistake, A, they're not going to grow a sense of fear that their boss or their mentor is going to like lash out at them. And B, they're going to grow respect for their boss for having been willing to take a moment to teach through the mistake and B, they're going to, they're going to be more motivated to do it right the next time. I, I think the idea that fear is a motivator is a falsehood. So I think that's, that's what makes a good mentor or a part of what makes a good mentor. I think it's, it's, it's pretty complex beyond that. Um, um, and then in terms of a mentee, mentee, which is an odd word, the, the learner, the apprentice, I think that they're they're so tied together i think that a good mentee a good learner is somebody that is not afraid to make a mistake or afraid to admit a mistake because they're going to make a mistake regardless there's going to be mistakes all through the board um i've i've had apprentices that tried to hide mistakes and it never really pans out for them and it just creates problems for me whereas if they'd just been like hey i i screwed this one up well, why did you screw it up? How did it happen? Let's talk about the process that got you here. And let's talk about what we can do to not have this happen again. But it all happens in the context of not being upset about these things. And then uh, another key to being a good mentor is always asking what you can do. What can I do next? What can I do? What's the next thing you need me to do? Being, being a sponge for work. Um, so I'd, I'd sort of scraping the surface, I'd, I'd say those are elements. So we shouldn't just yell at our, at our apprentices and throw stuff back at them. And so often, no, you shouldn't. No, I've never, I've never seen it work. I've never, okay. You know, I, that's not true. I have never seen it work in a manner that the person getting yelled at comfortably turns into the person doing the yelling but what i mean rather is is a mentor in my mind uh oh gosh um oh ted lasso yeah. anyways there's a scene uh where uh the owner of a football club in england so a soccer a soccer club in england has hired uh, a marketing person and that marketing person is so good at their job that uh, a, a venture capitalist wants to invest in her to become her own marketing firm. Thus she becomes her own boss and leaves the woman that she's worked for. Right. And so there's a scene where she fearfully crying sits on a couch with her boss 
and admits that she's been offered this gig and her boss is like i've done my job like like not to get too it was a very emotional scene but the base of it is is her boss says i've done my job you are moving on to do your thing to be your boss um and i think that in an ideal mentor mentee relationship a mentor looks at a mentee not as somebody that is subservient to them and they are going to that is going to work for them forever but as somebody that potentially could become their own boss could become their own mentor even within their own company i started i was an apprentice at a company and 13 years later i was the teacher like my, the my boss that taught me how to frame stairs and had a cope of crown molding and like all these various elements of carpentry at some point like eight or nine years in he just sort of foisted these responsibilities on me and i suddenly realized that all of my all of my job site folk like the carpenters that were sent to me were all first and second year folk and 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 i had them because i was the te- i was now the teacher uh within the company so i think that mentors want to make mentees into mentors and i think if you have that attitude you're not going to yell at them because you want them to learn you know you want to you want to bring everybody up you don't want to beat them down because they didn't they because they committed the inch rule which everybody commits the inch rule but why you know are you gonna do you know what the inch rule is i do not oh gosh one of the most common mistakes around new england is if you're measuring with a tape measure, right? You're pulling left, you're pulling right. One way, you're pulling upside down, right? It is a very common mistake to burn an inch by accident because the tape's upside down. Meaning if it needs to be 69 and three quarters, you accidentally do Mm. 68 and three quarters because the tape's upside down and just your brain reads it wrong. It's a very, very common mistake among young carpenters. It's like... I I've done it in the last two years and I'm 25 years into this. So why would I yell at an 18 year old kid? Because he did that. Why don't we talk about ways that you can orient yourself so you don't make a mistake. And then maybe you don't, but you might, because I did. Right. So I like to admit my mistakes, even though I 25 years in, that's another element of being a good mentor is being willing to be wrong. Absolutely. And I have definitely committed that error. I just didn't know it had a name. Yeah, we around here. I, I yeah. regionally we call it the intro. So I cut a lot of stuff wrong back in the day. And yeah, it still happens. Same. And and it sucks when you need that one piece of trim. I know, right? Like, you can always buy two like, pieces because there's two people. I was gonna be <laughs> It's always good when you burn the inch in the wrong direction. You're like, I got an extra. Yes. Inch. Good. So, yes. Now you're a site supervisor, lead carpenter, teacher. What do you look for in your employer? And that's a, that's very broad. You know, there's anything from benefits to the kind of atmosphere they provide. So what, what's important to you there? Um. Yeah, so we can start with the basic stuff that's that's obvious. Uh, I, I am I'm an employee. I have always been an employee. Uh, there was a, a period of time when I was in my early my early married years where my wife was in grad school, and it was required of me to work on the side uh, to the extent that I, I I had a bit of a side business, um, somewhat official, um, but. For the majority of my career, vast majority of my career, I've been an employee of a company. And uh, in the 25 years that I've been doing this professionally, uh, yeah, one, two, three, five, I've had four, four employers. So, which is not many for 25 years. And that says something about my, what I value an employer and what I've discovered. Um, I think that, uh, you know, from the nuts and bolts, you look for, um, a benefit package, uh, which is sometimes hard to come by in our trades. Um, you know, I, I currently have a, a, a 401k with maximum contribution. I have a good health insurance plan that covers my whole family. It's a, you know, slightly high deductible, but it's a decent, it's a decent insurance plan for a, for a construction company. Um, I have paid holidays 
as well as uh, paid vacation uh, for me, three weeks at this point, paid vacation, which I think is pretty decent for a construction company. Um, so there's all those, you know, hard numbers that you're looking for. Um, but from a, from a philosophical and a, and a, and a, and a, and a, um, from a philosophical, philosophical standpoint, from um, a mission statement sort of standpoint, uh, I'm looking, I've always been looking for a company that is willing to give space to learning. Um, that's, that's not number one, but that's one thing where the folks that I work with are willing to teach me. So that that's early early in my career, it was very, I, I highly valued being employed by somebody that would, that was willing to take the time to show me how to do something. I didn't watch YouTube videos. I'm just old enough that they really didn't exist. Um, and uh, so there weren't a lot of resources to learn other than to go to a trade school, but I was, I wasn't self-taught. I, I was taught by my pop and then got into it and realized that my pop had a very limited set of skills to teach me and I had a lot to learn. And so finding somebody that was willing to take a day, a whole day of his billable time and, and show me how to set up a square and, and a rise and a run and divide out unit rise to total rise and total run from unit run and lay out a set of stairs. That was a value to me. And so I, I look for companies that are willing to do that now that I'm the person handing that down to the, to the next person, I want to be in a place where I, I'm not going to get scolded for, for doing that. So, so the value of teaching within a company is very important for me. And I, I'm not saying that it has to be the case for everybody else, but if you were in a company that values teaching, you're probably working for a very good. Secondly, um, the level of craft. Uh, and I, I, I want to be careful with this because I have friends that work in markets where they're the best at what they do in their markets. And they install two and a half inch colonial casing and pre-hung split jam doors. Do you know what those are? Mm-hmm, what most people hang. So, so they're, 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 uh, they're, they're just a certain tier with hollow core doors. Like that's what they do within sort of a, the custom environment that they live. It's just the market they live in. I live in a very historic old area of the United States. And I work in a ridiculous, overly expensive environment, but it's been my career for 25 years. So one of the things I look for is a company that is willing to allow me to pursue the craftsmanship that I value. And I think, I think you can scale that. So if you're, if you want to be a custom, a custom trimmer, a custom finisher in a market where the custom finisher trimmer, mar trimmer market is slightly less than say historic Chicago, heavy, heavy multiple tiered sort of molding packages, then you find somebody that's willing to, to do that with you um, and give you the time to do it. Uh, so a learning environment, an environment where craftsmanship is valued, and I don't want to say over the dollar, but craftsmanship is valued so that the dollar amount allows for the craftsmanship, right? So you price that into, into what's happening. Um, I, I look for a company that values my family. I got to go home early because I got to pick my kid up from school because he's sick. It's odd how many times I've heard people be like, nope. You're not going anywhere. No, I, I work for a company that says, you got kids, take care of your kids. We'll see you tomorrow. So those are three things. But Now, what's the most difficult aspect of supervising a site for an employer? Hmm. The most difficult aspect of supervising. For me, between yeah, me please. and my... For me, between me and my foreman, it was being on the same page. Simple, mm -hmm. but super challenging because he and I really approached things almost 
hundred percent of the time from the opposite direction and how we thought it through, not necessarily mm-hmm. the process, but how we thought about it. It's been years uh, since I've had this uh, because I have been inserted into midstream jobs for three years now, pre-pandemic. I've been taken off of jobs that I got taken off of a job that I had started uh, like a multi-million dollar renovation and brought in to take over an emergency situation. And that started a chain effect of like three years of doing this, which came up in my review today. Um, uh, So it's been tough because I've had to catch up to whatever the subs were doing. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say that most difficult job as a supervisor that I experience is scheduling. And I know that sounds like a cop-out. This is the challenge of being a supervisor. A good supervisor is very clear, organized, written out, communicates expectations on a job site. And one of the things that I love is when I walk into a job that I'm starting, whether it be a renovation, a new construction, et cetera, of looking like putting my desk together. I get a little job site desk that I'll build out of scrap lumber or whatever, and, and building my expectations for the clients uh, with the subcontractors. I think getting subcontractors to buy in because a plumber just wants to do what they want to do. They don't, they don't want to, they, they just want to do what they want to do, but I have something I want them to do. And what I, as a supervisor, what I want them to do is actually more important than what they want to do. And that's something a supervisor needs to accept, understand, and operate with confidence. And it's like what you as a supervisor want done is more important than what the electrician, the plumber, the HVAC, any other subcontractor wants to do. So I think the challenge is the buy-in, right? So I, I, I put a lot of work into getting the plumber or the electrician to be like, you know what you're doing. I'm going to do what you want to do. And that's a real intangible. That's hard to, that's hard to manifest other than just having what it takes to do it. Um, But it's, it's a, if, if, if you can't get the buy-in, you're going to struggle. So I guess the most challenging aspect of being a supervisor is getting all of the people underneath you to buy into the way you want things done and to do them with you. How do you wrestle with getting your craft done in the day and managing all that stuff? (sighs) Some days are better than others, (laughs) you know? Um, if I, if I, if I, can control if I have control over a project from the get-go then I can engineer the outcome and I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna caveat that with the pandemic is kind of screwed with that because the pandemic has made certain things totally out of control you know I order my sub-zero and thermidor on the day that I'm supposed to order them for the four months later that I'm gonna need to have them delivered and then Thermidor sell or Yale Appliance is a Boston company says, oh, you ordered them four months ago. We're not going to have them for three more months. And I can't do anything about that, but that just affects everything. And it's out of my control. Um, uh, but um, if it's, if I can control it, I can make it happen. Is how I view it. Okay. In the grand scheme, why do skilled trades matter? They're irreplaceable. I don't believe that AI or robotics will ever replace them. They're irreplaceable. But I also believe that they matter because working with our hands, fabricating, manipulating, building, constructing, making matters. I sit in a basement and I'm not going to show it to you right now, but right over there, is a bench that I sharpied in marker two years ago. I sharpied Unders, Unders workbench. Unders is my, my six-year-old son. And for three years now, because I, I sharpied it in there 
two years ago, but we had been a year in there. For three years now, I have built a small little tool chest as he's seen fit to want. Uh, and I have installed like various elements of building and constructing and his, God, I wish I could show this to you. It's upstairs. Um, so he brought home his kindergarten stuff like this big box of his kindergarten experience and one of them was his i this box that they made every kid in the class made a box of the things they do the ideas they have and his box is like nine pictures of me building with it just making stuff um you're not going to see this on the podcast but if you give me a second i'm going to I'm going to go get a couple of things just so you can see what I'm talking about. Okay. okay. I'll, be, I'll be right back. It's right. It's right over here. Okay. All right. So we went through a boat building phase. And when I say phase, we've had lots of phases. This is a party boat. All right. I'm going to try and roll this out here. See this, this, I'm not going to roll it all the way up, but this is a, 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 a an umbrella that rolls a up. Canopy. Yeah, canopy. Yep. And there's, and there's your Very pontoons, cool. right? So that was one. It's even got a steering wheel inside, right? Mm. And then this is a Viking. It, the sail ripped off of it last year, but this is a Viking ship where I was teaching about how miters work. Okay. Mm -hmm. And glued up. That's just one element of 20 things that I've done with him uh, that have no market value <laughs> whatsoever. No market value. They don't, they don't give anything to like the economy of the world, but he is learning. He's learning how to build, how to make, how what we are in this world can contribute to creation right uh, and i i his whole idea box is like building creating stuff and it's like the, it doesn't have to have a market at that point he just like we're born to create and maybe that's from a creator i, I you know i don't know maybe that's just evolution uh may, whatever it is like we we love to create i hope and if we don't maybe Maybe there's a trauma that we need to process, but like creation is part of our life. And the trades are a remaining element of that visceral creation. We are still creating with our hands. We are still drawing it up and nailing it together, screwing it together and assembling it. And at the end of the day, what we've made is something that can be used physically, a kitchen, a bathroom, a living room a bedroom a roof you know, like all those things and i i just that gets my juices flowing who was your mentor probably had mm. many but one I had many um can i can i use two sure all right so number one is my dad um i have a recent post on my instagram account um that I've reposted once or twice because it's just an iconic photo. He's using a Makita, a Makita circular. Yeah, he's using a Makita circular saw and he's uh, making a tenon in a log cabin, a beam for a log cabin that we were building back in 1980. I want to say 86, 85 when this was going on. I was 10 or 11. Um, Makita actually stole that picture and put it into an advertisement i had to i had to email them and be like listen you didn't ask for my permission that's my dad and they mm. took it down not that i wanted to take it down it was just like weird to like see it on my email i got an email from makita tools and it was like my dad i was like what anyways um so my dad uh my dad invited me to be there for everything that he was doing and my mom has sent me countless pictures being like, you could put this on Instagram, it'd be cool. And I don't, but there's countless pictures of, of like my dad, like me looking up at my dad as he's like showing me how to finish a chair and, uh, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And um, he put tools in my hands and he taught me how to use them. And he, 
uh, taught me, he taught me the value of, of, of embracing learning a bunch of different stuff, which is more than just construction, more than just the trades. He just learned how to do stuff. Like when I was a kid, I learned how to sweat pipes as a plumber, like, like copper pipes. I learned how to run the electrical. So my pop is definitely at the top of the list. And then uh, there's a guy named uh, Marlon Shearer. Uh, his company has a, a, an account on social media, but he's not. But he was my first really good boss as a full-time carpenter. And he was the guy that, uh, hey, I'd love to learn how to frame stairs. Hey, I'd love to learn how to frame stairs. He was the guy that was like, all right, I got a staircase that we can work on. It's exterior. It's off of a deck. But let's, you and I, let's, let's do it. And he took the time out of the day to, like, stop what he was doing and give his hours to me to teach me about rise and run unit versus total and how slope worked. And that was probably the, the moment where I transitioned from just doing it because I made decent money and I had a knack for it to, Oh gosh, this is awesome. This is math. This is, I love math. I've always been good at math. I was like, oh my gosh, there's real math here. There's trigonometry. Holy crap, there's trigonometry and carpentry. And I had that realization working with him. And that was that was where I, I turned the corner from making enough money to pay the bills to, oh crap, I really love this. Mm. I really love this. And I want to get good. I want to get good at this. And so my dad introduced me and show me how to love cutting wood and making stuff. And Marlon was the guy that engaged my brain. Cause I have, I have, I have college degree. Uh, and I was a teacher of regular things, not just carpentry before I was at North Penn Street. And, and when, when my mind latched on to the fact that there's intellect and thoughtfulness and uh, 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 practice uh i took that's when i took off like in terms of getting better at what i did and understanding what i did so yeah marlon shearer and my dad it's a great story and you're fortunate to have had that yeah no i'm lucky i i put up a father's day post on my instagram pretty much every year and it's it's this doesn't need to be on on record or all but yeah I, I don't know like it's really I, I i have a real sadness around mother's day father's day stuff because i try to i try to honor my parentage um on the days that i, I that that i can and i just i get sometimes i get these messages i i, I had i just had a conversation with a guy um he made a comment on the post about you know, his dad was AWOL and he hasn't had a, a beacon or a, or a benchmark and he doubts himself all the time and uh, he doesn't know if he's doing a good job and uh, appreciates my post, but at the same time, like, he's just kind of lost and I could just ignore that, but I can't ignore that. So I ended up in, like, for the last two days, just, like, engaging with this guy being like, hey, I... I I had a great dad and I doubt myself daily, you know? Mm. And it's like the hope you have, the, the guy I was talking to is that you're going to be present for your kids. You're going to be around for them so that when they become parents, they have a benchmark that you didn't have. They have a dad that was around to be a benchmark for what they want to be. So, so like you're, You've got an opportunity. I saw the post. And it's very, I, it's very powerful. It's, it's, it speaks to a lot of people. Yeah, well, it's that's how I very feel. Powerful. And, 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 and when I, you know, sometimes I have a difficult time with social media because I want to spend an hour with that guy. Yeah. And sometimes there's like fifty of those guys. Yep. And it's like. I can't believe that they that they dumped that on my comments, like that they felt close enough to whatever I do 
to um, to dump that on my comments. And I don't mean dump in a negative, you know what I mean? But like, how do I occupy a space where I'm this facade? I don't think people know where to go in mental health issues are no and that's they, a, they that's another huge topic right the way stuff manifests for people and when it comes out obviously people that were uh, uh, abandoned or are from these absentee households have huge trust issues and then you're a teacher you're guiding light in so many ways and then of course it's going to happen that people are going to open up to you emotionally because you've given them so much. Yeah, no, I've accepted and, and, it. I've accepted it at this point, but it's like, I just want to, if ever, if there's nothing else that what I do on Instagram is something that people take value from, uh, you know, that, that what, that what I, what I post, what I offer, what I teach is something that is real and not fabricated and, uh, I, I, I use the word image crafting frequently when I talk to various people about it. I, I, I try not to craft who I am, um, but just sort of be. Best joke. It's a long, it's a long joke. Oh, I you have, have one. Many, I do. I have one long joke. I'll try and make it. Um, uh, this couple uh, took a trip to Ireland. Does it have to be clean? I only have one joke and, I, and, and it's always good to have some jokes in your pocket for, All right. for a crappy I'll, situation. I'll, let, let me tell it, let me tell it really quick. And you can, I'll, I'll, okay. I'll the one word, the one bad word, I'll make a cleaner word. Irish right. uh, couple, go, couple gets married, goes to Ireland. I'm going to do it as fast as I can. Uh, honeymoon in Ireland, wake up from their first night and then we go down to uh, a joint to have breakfast. They walk into this bar, they sit down, they're having breakfast. Uh, brunch slash I don't know noon so Guinness is on the table etc cetera, etc cetera. they're sitting there in breakfast there's a guy down the end of the bar and he looks at them they look back he walks over he's like hi my name's McAllister they're like I'm McAllister how are you doing he's like I built this bar with my bar hands just me and they're like oh it's a beautiful bar huh? it's it's, it's a, uh, looks like cherry or mahogany I don't know it's beautiful good work he's like but nobody ever says McAllister built a beautiful bar in that in that in that pub nobody ever says anything about that i'm like we're sorry to hear that McAllister. he's like did you see the church across the street and he's like they're like yeah we, we walked by it our waiter he's like i built that church with my bare hands just me i built the whole church with my bare hands they're like it's a beautiful church he's, they're like nobody ever says McAllister. great job building that church it's wonderful it's a beautiful church to worship in the house of god they're like, we're really sorry to hear that. It's like, have you been down the street and seen Town Hall? They're like, uh, they haven't been there yet. He's like, well, I built Town Hall with my own bare hands, just me. I did the whole thing myself. And nobody ever says, McAllister, great job building Town Hall. You did a wonderful job. It's a lovely architecture. We enjoy going in. We enjoy going out. It's a beautiful place. And he's like, but you screw one sheep. I haven't heard that one in a long time. It's an old joke. It's the only, it it's is. Like the only one. It is. Okay. Um, okay. I'm going to guess your favorite tool. Please. Actually with you, it's going to be a tough one. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say a coping saw. Oh, helping out. Okay. Favorite tool. Multi-tool. Oscillating. Oh, that was actually in my head. I swear. That's what I was going to say. Cause well, it's a great tool. Uh, your most useful tool. Currently, can we go with currently? Yeah. Currently is uh, pack out the pack out. Uh, it could be any brand, but for me, the Milwaukee pack out uh, M18 vacuum. Mm. I, I hook it up to my palm sander, my belt sander, my track saw and two or three other different tools. It is, it is dust collection that I can move around a job site mm -hmm. without cords because most of my tools are cordless at this point. So having a cordless vacuum that has good enough suction is really important for mobility. Otherwise I'm hooked up to a cord for the vacuum. Mm -hmm. So that, that vacuum is tremendously useful. I've, I've got four or five guys on my job uh, on my, in my company 
that are like, oh, I'm buying that because they were on my job site. And I was like, here's the track saw and my cordless track saw and vacuum go trim 20 doors. Mm. And they went and they didn't have to bring any doors to a bench. They just brought the the tooling to the job site to, to where they were working. Mm. So I, nice. I, I probably go with that. Okay. What about the, where have you been all my life tool? Mm. I'm looking at them right now. Where have you been all my life? Um, Oh my gosh, that's a tough one because I just have so many tools. Where have you been on my life tool? Uh, uh, how, how far back are we going? It, whenever <laughs> that moment happened, we were like, whoa, how come I haven't had this the whole time? Um, um, me originally, it was the multi-tool. When, the multi, yeah. when I got a multi-tool, I was like, what the hell is wrong with me? Why? I mean that 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 would be the answer, but it, I already gave it as an answer. You so can you can it's so. okay. It can be the, it can be the it can same be the answer. Same thing. I can. Yeah, it's gonna be the multi-tool. Okay. Um, best job site snack. Peanuts. Best job site jams. Peanuts. Uh this might surprise you and I'm going to go out on a limb and let it be public to whatever your public is Broadway musicals. Okay. What question would you ask my next guest? Do you tune up your saws at every change of phase? Ooh, you're going to catch some people with their pants down with that one. Yeah. Well, I do. I carry <laughs> I carry a full set of tuna tools in my, in my, in my drawers. And at every change of phase, I tune up the tools. I don't tune them up job site to job site. It's every phase. Well, thanks for taking time out. To talk to me today. This was fun. For sure. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, everybody. Today's shout out goes to Parker Allman. Framer at B&B Builders out of Island Park, Idaho. Keep being the best of what you do, man. Hey, if you found value in the content of the show or some sense of affirmation for what you're doing, please consider writing review on iTunes, rating me on Spotify, or sharing the pod directly to social media from your phone. And remember, the work we do each day, the stuff we make and leave behind, it's our legacy. So create a legacy that matters. All right, that's all I got. Later. Later.